hard to believe, but it's only one week until Thanksgiving. This one creeped up on me. You know, it's funny because you always have like the last minute shopping before Christmas and, and people expressing things like I just did. of Oh, you know, the, the season's creeping up on me. It's the same day every year. Like you don't really have an excuse <laughs> to not be prepared for it. But it just feels like this this whole and maybe it's because I'm I'm 40 now. We talked about birthdays yesterday. Time really does seem to be speeding up faster and faster as the years go by. And uh, it, it seems like just a couple of weeks ago, we were lakeside. We were hanging out at the beach, you know, still running around in the with the, the jet ski and what have you. And in fact, it was like two months ago that that was happening. So for it to be Thanksgiving already is uh, I'm going to go ahead and use the word traumatic. I feel safe. I feel like I'm in a safe space tonight because we've got Pastor Nathan Roberts with us uh, for one of our Thursday night bipartisan quasi-theological, quasi-political discussions. And so I feel safe using the word trauma to describe what I'm experiencing with with Thanksgiving being upon us. I think this is a safe place. <laughs> oh, well, I, and that means a lot coming from you, Nathan. I appreciate it. And uh, But anyway, yeah, so we're a week out from Thanksgiving, and that's what we want to talk about tonight because we're this is the last opportunity we're going to have to have this bipartisan meeting of the minds prior to the holiday and uh, it, we wanted to take the opportunity to talk about and, and to kind of preview and pregame your dinner with your crazy politically opposed relative that you're not looking forward to, or perhaps you are looking forward to. And that's kind of where I want to start the conversation tonight on closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Brad Omlin producing the show for us. I want to start with why we're even having this conversation and, and what it is that that we are anticipating next week. Because per- personally, I can tell you, I don't have any intention or plan of having any sort of political conversation with my relatives next week if it comes up it comes up and maybe it will probably it will at some point just because it's a kind of a defining aspect of what i do and so when people my small talk includes politics just by nature of what i do but i don't have some sort of plan to like try to change somebody's mind is that what we're talking about here pastor nathan is is it kind of like an i an almost like a politically evangelical motive of trying to change people's hearts and minds around the Thanksgiving dinner table or around the Thanksgiving holiday? I don't think so. Uh, I think if people could change each other's political uh, worldview over dinner, um, there'd be a lot more moving around in the polls. But uh, I think that a lot of people come in um, with a lot of anxiety about the dinner table, um, especially depending on what role you play in your family. If you're the peacemaker, um, you might have warned a few people to shut it down. Um, I also think that, um, like you talked, like you talked about small talk. Um, one of the things that I think that there are people that are just potsters, and um, right after an election, um, people can be pretty hot. And have a lot of um, a lot going on inside them that they want to say. Yeah, um, especially it's their way of processing. It's their way of processing, and uh, 
you know, somebody could say, well, you know, even harmless things like I love watching football and somebody might jump in with, well, the NFL is a racist institution. So if you love it, you're a racist, you know, anything can be on the table. Yeah. And so what we want to go over tonight or, or get, or use as a catalyst for our discussion is being a little bit more intentional about those potential interactions and trying to navigate them in a way that is productive and that leaves relationships intact is that a fair characterization absolutely so give us some of your your uh your tips and thoughts regarding the approach to thanksgiving from a from a uh, opposing partisan perspective especially if you have a politically divided family um i think those families are often ones that um can feel really hurt at uh, Thanksgiving, especially if you've come in from driven in somewhere and things kind of explode, it can just cast a shadow over the whole weekend. That was supposed to be a great time. Um, I've talked to several people who uh, maybe they grew up with a political worldview that was closer to their family um, and maybe have moved away from that for whatever reason. Right. Um, And they really talk about how they miss having those discussions and that in the last couple of years, I've heard from a lot of people say, we just can't talk about it anymore Um, with kind of sadness. Like they kind of miss connecting, Mm -hmm. especially for people who that was their way to connect with people. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like shooting the breeze around big ideas. Right. And they're just not able to do that anymore. See, this is, this is all kind of Greek to me because I, I don't, it hasn't been my experience that, and maybe it's just the family that I'm in, which is primarily, it's primarily my in-laws is, is my, my active day-to-day family, my actual blood relatives. I don't see fairly at all. Um, but my in-laws, the, the culture of their family has largely been one of these. We don't talk about religion and politics type deals. It's kind of an unwritten rule. And I imagine, uh, to avoid exactly what you're talking about. And so the, I anticipate nothing even remotely close to this taking place. Hasn't been my experience. It's not the way that our family connects on, on and, and perhaps it should be. Maybe that's one of the aspects that we can talk about is, you know, how do you introduce the big ideas in such a way that it's not going to upset the cart or, or rock the boat to the point of things becoming dysfunctional. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, I do think that connecting about things that you're passionate about, about big ideas is a way that you can connect. Um, I think sometimes a relationship can hit a ceiling if there's something that's really important to you and you're not sharing it and you kind of section it off. Um, There can be sort of a loss like, and eventually you're sort of wandering through a conversation, avoiding landmines Mm-hmm. And pretty soon there's so many landmines that you can only talk about sort of such mundane things that there's a loss of intimacy. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of approaching next Thursday in, in such ways to avoid that type of scenario, what are some of the, the thoughts that you have in terms of how people can plan to enter the holiday discussions? Yeah. So, um, for those of you, uh, who have been listening, um, maybe know that I serve a congregation that's very across the political spectrum. Um, we have Republicans, we have conservatives, we have independents, we have people who hate talking about politics. Um, and 
one of the things that I tell people is to make a plan before the day um, and to reach out intentionally to the people that you want to talk to people that you think have insights and thoughtfulness around a particular issue. Um, reach out to the people that maybe you've been seeing them share what, in your opinion is a bunch of fake news and you want to tell them, knock it off on Facebook. Um, reach out to people that you maybe disagree with, but you respect their mind and you respect their heart and you want to, talk to them about something that's going on in the world. Um, but make a plan before Thursday, um, send them a text, send them a message and say, Hey, I'd love to chat, chat with you. And then what I always tell people is that make it an opt in, um, and not an opt out. So you can opt into this conversation because we're going to have it as we take a lap around the park after dinner, right? You know, we're going to have it. Um, we're going to get a cup of coffee. Um, and well, and that, I, I think, what you're hitting on there is an important point, which is making it a one-on-one versus what it's going to be. like. It, these conversations should not be happening. And I don't know if you agree with this or not, but they should not be happening at the dinner table because then it becomes very performative. It becomes very much here. Here's me putting on, you know, doing my, my little dance and displaying my intelligence and displaying my moral superiority and what have you for the, not for the person you're actually having a conversation with, but for everybody else who's watching. Absolutely. I also think that everybody else did not sign up for that. Right. Yeah. That's when true. they signed up for that, that unless that's the culture of your family. Sure. Unless everybody knows in your family that there's going to be a big political right. throwdown, but that's yeah. very few families. Yeah. Um, Airing of grievances is just a holiday tradition. Exactly. Right. Um, but if that's not your family culture, which I'm guessing it's not, um, I think opt in. Um, and one way you can do a creative opt in is to tell people um, to, to talk to the one person that you're saying and say, hey, is this a just us conversation that we're going to have or are other people allowed to join us and kind of decide that before? So you're not like, hey, um, Tommy and I are going to get together on, you know, tomorrow morning, Friday morning and have this discussion and then you have like auntie who wants to jump in and you're like, Oh no, 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 that's not what we wanted. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And say, so decide before, um, if it's going to be private or not. Um, and also I think it's really important that we avoid baiting people. Um, I think that there is a bad impulse in progressivism to, be like, oh, I love Thanksgiving, and be like, oh, you love the genocide of Native American people? <laughs> right? Like, no, that's not what I was saying, but they want to talk about that. Right, right, right. And they're going to make you talk about that. Right. And I think that is not productive because it doesn't allow people to show up as their best self. Mm-hmm. And it's about catching people, like you said, and performing. Right. And I just think that's not where's that going to go? If that was going to change the direction of any election, it would have been changed by now mm-hmm. that, that tactic. Well, and, and I don't know, maybe, maybe this was lost in our introductory comments, but if, what is the objective of these conversations? Is it, is it actually to, to move somebody into a different direction or is it to just understand where they're coming from to, to deepen your relationship, all of the above What in your mind is the objective. So that's a really good question. And I think that's something that you should decide before you go into a conversation. Um, If your objective is to change someone's mind, um, then it's going to be a long conversation. Well, yeah. Which I would not. I think another thing is just like, don't 
keep having a conversation until you start arguing, you know, maybe set a time limit. But I think um, one of the things that I heard going into the um, presidential election in 2016 was that uh, somebody came up to me and said, um, I was taken aback by the election of Trump and just totally floored. And one of my more conservative friends said, you were floored because everybody took one look at you and your Facebook newsfeed and they didn't bring it up. And so I was, I realized that I was totally out of the loop and I was disconnected from so much of America. So this took me by surprise. Um, I also think that as a Republic, um, a representative Republic, we are required of one another to show up and tell the news from our part of America. And I think hearing stories from other parts of America helps us be more informed voters, be more informed policymakers. Um, and if you hear it from a trusted person, they say, um, if, if you hear something from a trusted person, you're much more likely to believe it than if you hear it on TV or right. in a newsfeed. And so um, if I have cousins in a rural environment um, and I say, well, this is what my neighborhood's like. It's an urban neighborhood. And, you know, I have Latinos and Somalis living in my neighborhood and this is what it's like. Um, I think that's important information for them to know in the same way that um, it's important for me to know what's really going on with their experience of being a farmer in small town. Are these tariffs, what progressives are saying, are they destroying the rural environment the way that they say they are? Or is that not their experience? Talking point. Yeah. Right. So we can be more informed. Yeah. I mean, when you put it in those terms, it, uh, it, it sounds almost like we're overanalyzing it and it's really obvious what the objective is, which is to just have a relationship and understand each other. Uh, and in order to, to whatever your perspective is, and this is something that I've tried to, this is my value proposition for listeners like you, Nathan. I mean, that's how this started was you listening to the show and the, my, the value proposition for progressive listeners to this show is I'm not asking you to agree with me. I don't expect you to agree with me. But what I do hope you get out of it is that you understand what it is that you're disagreeing with and are able to formulate a coherent statement as to why you disagree with it. Because the, I, the, the thing that's worse in my mind than disagreeing with me is thinking you disagree with me when you don't even know what it is that I'm talking about or that, that my position actually is. And I think there's a lot of that that goes on in our culture. Absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the most satisfying parts um, of being on the show so far was hearing you um, last last night or Tuesday night, I forget, um, articulate uh, what, what I talked about, about transgender bathrooms. Right. And you articulated my position. You completely disagreed with it. Right. And like spent 20 minutes talking about how you thought it was not correct at all. But you did listen and you articulated my position. And and. I think that's what it's going to take to sort of, I think when people talk about a divided America, it's deeper than the votes dividing us because we've always had two parties that have always, it's not just that people are voting for different parties. It's that we're actually fracturing as a culture. Mm -hmm. And I think building relationships is going to, what it's going to take for us to sort of knit back together our country um, so that, you don't have to agree with someone completely to maintain a relationship. Right. Well, and 
the 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 existence of cross ideological relationships is the kind of like the um there's a particular word I'm searching for, but like the firewall, it's the it's the way in which the republic is going to endure in th- through political trauma. It's the re- the relationships have to be there as kind of like a a buttress or a a cast on a broken limb, you know, so to speak, in order to provide some kind of stability for for healing to occur. To use a particular metaphor. Also, if we aren't getting real messages from people who live in these neighborhoods, we're just going to have to rely on the news media to give us information about these other neighborhoods. And mm-hmm. how can we, we can't necessarily trust news media to correctly identify um, my neighborhood nor anyone else's neighborhood. I mean, they have an agenda. Right. And if you can come in and say, Hey, that's actually not really true about my neighborhood. Right. Yeah. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. The number to join us. Do you have a plan to confront or engage a family member next Thursday for the Thanksgiving holiday? Let us know. Let us know your thoughts. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Pastor Nathan Roberts in studio with us. Twin Cities News Talk. AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM. Twin Cities News Talk dot com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. In studio with me tonight, Pastor Nathan Roberts for our uh, Thursday night theological slash political check-ins. A little bipartisan back and forth. Today, we're previewing your Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, there, Frankly, there's not going to be a lot of live shows between now and then, so we're taking the opportunity to have our conversation with uh Pastor Nathan today about how it's going to be when you find yourself sitting across the Thanksgiving table from uh, your your from our perspective your loony lefty auntie uh, and from Nathan's perspective your cantankerous conservative uncle or whatever the case may be how do you negotiate that tension in such a way that uh, it preserves relationships and doesn't make things worse doesn't cause an outburst and and, uh, and, you know, may, might even improve your relationship. Wouldn't that be something to actually come out the other end feeling better about each other in spite of the fact that you may still disagree? Yeah, that would be um, pretty amazing. Uh, you would have done uh, what most of America cannot seem to do. Mm-hmm. So when we when we contemplate that, in your mind, what are some of the, or perhaps the biggest pitfall in terms of you know what you need to avoid as you're engaging with a a family member that you have deep ideological disagreements with well i think one of the things that um the media gets a lot of mileage out of is uh shorthand labels for people categories um we see it a lot in the you know ticker underneath uh ultra conservative this or extreme feminist or whatever the whatever the adjective and uh, label is. And I think when you're talking to somebody, it's important to kind of leave those aside. Um, It's important to not put someone in a box, especially someone that you care about. Um, You know, I think Jesus said, you know, do not judge lest ye be judged. And, uh, and I think if you put someone in a box, they're, 
everybody's got a million boxes that they can throw each other in, you know, and you're just going to stick your, they're going to stick you in a box too. Um, and I think that's not very interesting. Um, if everybody's just a caricature of the worst parts of their position, then how, that's not going to be a fun conversation um, or interesting. Uh, the other thing I think that's important is leave sort of your inside baseball lexicon out of the conversation. So progressives have a lot of um, words that we use uh, when we're talking to other progressives and oftentimes when we're talking on Twitter, like white privilege, um, you know, racism, the new white supremacy, ally culture, um, uh, feminism. And, and these are really important words um, for progressives and, and conversations that progressives have. But oftentimes um, these are where conversations break down when used shorthand for a big idea, um, because what I've noticed is that um, conservative media often has a different definition of that word that they're working with than progressives do. So you actually think you're talking, but you're actually not talking. Right. Um, I, I think a, a one that I see a lot is feminism. Um, feminism is often uh, given the tagline, the war against masculinity. <laughs> Um, on some of the bigger Fox News uh, sure, sure, sure. Um, speakers, they talk about the war on masculinity, the war on manhood, the war on uh, and uh, the wussification of America as right. feminism. Right, right, right. That is not what uh, progressives are talking about when we talk about feminism with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about equal pay. We're t- equal, equal pay for equal work. We're talking about um, how do you empower a female boss? Um, how do you um, navigate some ways that men talk to each other that can sort of exclude uh, more female ways of talking um, in a conversation? And so when you just throw out, yeah, I'm a feminist. Mm-hmm. I, and, you know, we got to go to our bottom of the hour break. When we come back, I'd be interested in kind of modeling this a little bit because let's let's because that could be that could be fun for the listeners too is let's have our thanksgiving dinner table conversation about the definition of these words because i i think you're absolutely right when when you use a word and you mean something completely different than what i hear there is no basis for a productive conversation past that point because we're not we're literally not talking about the same thing no and so that we, you have to, if, if your objective is genuinely to understand and to have a productive conversation, you have to pause and define your terms. And so that's what we'll pick up when we come back on Closing Argument with Pastor Nathan Roberts. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, All right, we've been talking theoretically about ways to have productive conversations with your ideological opponents within your own family around Thanksgiving, not necessarily at the table, because that doesn't seem to be a, a, a very likely to be a, a productive outcome, having that performative aspect of, I'm going to talk in front of the entire family about how you're dumb. <laughs> it usually doesn't end up going in a very productive place. Yeah, and usually get a, a strong talking to from... From someone in right. in a position of power in your right. family. Yeah, the matriarch, the patriarch, whoever <laughs> it happens to be, is going to pull you aside. So, but this is more in terms of you know having side conversations. You know, you mentioned having coffee, going for a walk, whatever the case may be, and trying to have productive conversations. And so, we we spent a lot of time 
talking about this in theory. I want to model it here going forward in this segment. And between you and I, obviously, we're ideologically opposed. You're a progressive pastor. I am a conservative, libertarian, Republican, uh, Christian. So we have different ideological perspectives. We've both agreed that we're trying to, you know, the whole purpose of having you in on a, on a semi-regular basis here on the program is to try to have these exact types of conversations where our goal is to understand each other, to understand our own positions better, to try to refine our positions and, and, and argue from the best position possible on account of truly understanding where the other side is coming from. So you had mentioned, and by the way, this closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can get in on the conversation as well, 651-989-5855. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing this show. Uh, as we're going out in the last segment, you were talking about how it's probably a bad idea if you're a progressive who's trying to talk to a conservative in your family. It's probably a good idea to leave your liberal lexicon at home or at the door and, and not come in using terms like white privilege, racism, white supremacy, ally culture, feminism, etc. And the the reason for that advice is because it's very difficult to because the, the two sides, broadly speaking, have very different definitions of those terms. And so if you're if you're coming into a conversation with different definitions of terms, it's it's pretty much impossible moving forward if you don't pause and establish a mutually understood definition. It's pretty much impossible to have a productive conversation going forward. So I want to kind of model this by let's let's go down this list and you and I mm-hmm. have this 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 moment of pause of let's define our terms. When you talk about white privilege as a progressive, mm-hmm. what in God's name are you talking about? <laughs> Um, that's a great question. Um, one I ask myself every day. So, um, white privilege for me is the metaphor I like to use is, um, like, um, a river, right? So, um, this is going to be interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So when you're canoeing down a river, the river has its own current. Okay. And that current is established by um, locks and dams that have been put in place to navigate that river in ways that are advantageous for water flow for some people and maybe disadvantageous for water flow for other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you're paddling, if you're paddling with the river, Mm -hmm. which I believe white people are paddling with the river because... um, there's a lot of our history that where laws were created um, that benefit um, white people um, and that also uh, white people often uh, are in positions of power in business and uh, politics and people tend to be more comfortable around people from their own community. Mm-hmm. So if it, it's more work to have a conversation, to have a working relationship with someone from a different culture. And so you might hire someone from the same culture as you because it's just going to be one less thing to think about, right? When you're, when you're at a, in a workplace, um, cause you know how to talk to that person. Um, cause 
they got a lot of similar things. So all these things make paddling my canoe down the river easier. And so when someone is a person of color or a queer person or a trans person and they're having to paddle upstream to keep up with me, they need to paddle harder. And if I start flying down the river and I'm like, ha ha, look at how awesome I'm, I'm paddling. Like, I think what my friends of color are asking white people to do is just acknowledge the current. You don't have to apologize. You didn't make, you didn't make the dams, but just acknowledge that you're going down river and things are easier. And so how can you name that? Um, think about why the dams were put where they were and how you can make the paddling easier for your people, for people of color. So understanding the limitations of any metaphor, I'm, I'm not going to try to pick too many nits in terms of how the, how the river uh, imagery fits what it is that we're trying to talk about. But suffice it to say, when I hear usage of the term white privilege in the discourse, I don't get the sense that we're, we're meant to just kind of take notice of the fact that white people have certain advantages in a society where they hold the majority just in terms of numbers that there's the, and in terms of history, I, I don't hear an appeal to self-awareness. What I hear is in, is a, a kind of a, an, an aggressive, I mean, the term that's used is check your privilege, right? And it's thrown down like a yellow flag, like somebody's calling a foul. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like you don't get to do what you're doing. You don't get to say what you're saying because white privilege. Explain that to me. Like, what's going on there when you're you're your college student or, you know, your your Black Lives Matter activist or whoever it is that I'm engaging with to, to and, you know, obviously they're not telling me to check my privilege because I happen to be a minority. But when they're telling a white conservative guy, you know, white heterosexual cisgendered Christian male to check his wow well done sir what 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 is what's going on there um so i think what i think is going on is a couple things um one uh when it's happening online it's disembodied so you're not really sure where that person's coming from um when i say check your privilege to other people which i don't really say check your privilege but i i would say like think about how being white has affected that outcome for you. Um, what I'm trying to say is acknowledge that you, your success um, comes at a bit of a cost for some other people. There was somebody who didn't get that job and did they not get that job for an unfair reason? And so when you're, when you're so excited about the things that you've accomplished, like really think about like, well, how were you advantaged? And I think race is unfortunately an advantage in a lot of situations. And so I think if you feel that you're keep getting passed over um, for opportunities, um, your patients can get pretty frayed, but also people get defensive when they feel like their accomplishment is being questioned. Right. Or their contribution is being questioned. Right. And so that's where the relationship, I think, really is important. Like, 
check shouting check your privilege into the void is not going to be like super effective. Mm-hmm. But that's where like having a conversation at Thanksgiving about that could be really effective. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll have to. I mean, there's a lot of other terms I'd like to us to engage in this exercise with, and we could get bogged down and discussing just one of them. But I, I do think it's to, to to my mind the consequence of implementing this notion of white privilege in the way that I hear you talking about it is that it it stands as kind of like a like a mental anchor to being able to enjoy your life like how can you pursue happiness how can you proceed in a healthy way as an individual and as a member of a community when you're constantly called upon to second guess the legitimacy of your achievements the legitimacy of your relationships the legitimacy of your success and you're constantly being called to to place it in some sort of historical or social context and like handicap yourself and, and kind of put up a handicap score to provide some sort of social equity for everyone else it, like as a as an as a social appeal i fail to see what's appealing about that exercise or am i misreading the exercise so it's not appealing to do and that's why people don't want to do it it it's not fun to be like oh man that guy like maybe maybe i got the job maybe a little bit of the benefit of why i got the job is because i'm white and the person who hired me is white that's so, illegal so there's so there's all sorts of things <laughs> there's there's all sorts of things that are difficult to do but people do them because they see the value proposition in doing the difficult things. So what's the value proposition in engaging in this checking of your privilege? So the value operation for me is to help and love my neighbor who's being unfairly disadvantaged. It goes back to my Christian faith to say, if I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, then if I'm seeing someone being handicapped, I want to name that and lift that up and point it out. And say, hey, we need to do that. I mean, I think that's what Jesus was doing when he went to talk to the Samaritan. You know, the Samaritan were like unclean people that Mm -hmm. Jewish people weren't allowed to touch. And he went not only to talk to a Samaritan woman, but to talk to a a woman in public, which was not allowed. Jewish people were not allowed to talk to women that they were not married to in public. And so so there's all these barriers of privilege that Jesus steps out of. He could have just ignored this woman. But he goes to the well and meets her and has this wonderful conversation interaction. Um, and so I see that as a model for, like, how am I going to get out of my bubble and begin to love these people um, that maybe see life really differently? Um, I also think people are capable of doing this. Like, we do it with sports all the time, right? When somebody's like, oh, that guy's got such long arms. Of course he's a great, like, wide receiver. Mm-hmm. We acknowledge, like... That he was born with long arms, right? But we th- th- see the thing is, and that and that's my issue with the river metaphor as well, is that being born with long arms or being born with with a natural predisposition towards this particular activity is not the same thing as saying because you're white, you, you society has been designed for you. Like one is in an, is is something that you have no control over, and the other is something that that ha- is a social construct. And it's, it seems to me that when we talk about white privilege, we're not just talking about because it's not like being white inherently makes you better at things. That's not the no, position. No, no. It's that 
society has been unfairly structured in such a way as that white people have certain advantages, which that those are two. One thing I don't have to apologize for the other potentially I do. So I think that, um, one thing that I remind myself is that Ruby bridges, the first African-American uh, person in the South to go to an integrated school is now 63 years old. Mm-hmm. That is not a long time ago sure. to have access to educational systems. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of African-Americans who fought in World War II came back to get the GI Bill, but their GI Bill, which essentially built the middle class in right. America, yeah. banks would not honor their GI Bill. Their, uh, that So they were not able to. And when they were offered the opportunity to cash in their GI Bill, they were only allowed to live in um, neighborhoods that didn't accrue much wealth or opportunity. And so that has stilted the growth of generational growth of um, certain communities. All right, let's, let's, because as usual, when we have you on, our segments are going a little long. Let's come back and start from there. When we return, we'll also take your calls at 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Pastor Nathan Roberts in with us. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. So we've been uh, so long-winded in our previous segments this hour that we have very little time in our final segment here. Uh, we will take your call starting at the top of next hour, 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, having a conversation with Pastor Nathan Roberts, broadly about you know how to engage with family of opposing ideology on Thanksgiving a week from tonight. Um, but it's it's also gotten into you know these specifics um, regarding definitions of terms and the different terminology that's used on both the right and the left. And and last segment we were kind of breaking down this concept of white privilege. And I'll say this because, you know, to, to summarize your position, Nathan, and feel free to clarify, white privilege is merely an acknowledgement of historical context, you know, an acknowledgement of the fact that there's, there's a historical trajectory and that we, even though certain corrective actions have been taken to something like Jim Crow Going, mm-hmm. going further back, slavery. Yeah. Even though those corrective actions have been taken, it's to some degree, perhaps a metaphor you could use would be like stopping a train or turning the Titanic, where there's still an inertia in effect, and, and certainly an effect that of, of bad institutions that, has, that is still has tangible effects on pe- the lives of people who are living today, and that that's what that's the legitimacy of white privilege as a concept. And I totally am with you on that. Like that's 100% true. The difficulty as I see it uh, for conservatives to do what I just did, which is to acknowledge that and to have any kind of a serious conversation about it moving forward. The reason why we're not able to is because this idea is not presented in a provocative manner to to evoke a good faith discussion about that. Rather, it's been weaponized for political effect. It, it's it's used in such a way as to say, you know, white privilege is a thing, therefore you shouldn't be in power. White privilege is a thing, therefore you shouldn't be elected. White privilege is a thing, therefore your taxes shouldn't be lower. Like. The prescription is offered in this political context, which presents a threat to people's position 
And that's not a position in which people are going to have a good faith conversation about an important social idea. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. Pastor Nathan Roberts in studio with us tonight. We have conversations with him on a semi-regular basis, uh, sometimes talking about theological issues, often talking about political issues, just trying to get a an alternative perspective from what you're used to hearing both on this program and on this station. And uh, I really enjoy our conversations. We always end up digging a little bit deeper and, and broader into topics than uh, we typically do j- just by virtue of being challenged, by virtue of being presented with an alternative way of looking at things. Hopefully you enjoy it as well. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing the show. Let's talk to Abdi in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Abdi. No, good to talk to you too, uh, Pastor Nathan. Um, I, I really appreciate you guys uh, having these uh, sorts of bipartisan uh, discussions and just kind of talking about the holidays and getting with family. It made me think of uh, Better Angels program. I'm not sure if you two are familiar with. Uh, have you guys ever heard of the Better Angels organization? I have not. Yeah. So, uh, Professor Bill Doherty here at the U, family social science professor, um, started this organization. Xavier uh, invited me from uh, from the RLC, and uh, they they kind of facilitate discussions between Democrats and Republicans in a way where you're not jumping down each other's throats and just arguing more so listening. So right. I, I interviewed him for uh, a, a project that I'm doing, and uh, I would definitely say just what you what you two here uh, have in terms of a faith discussion, um, a bipartisan discussion, including some of those. Because he said even, um, you know, a one-on-one conversation is much better than a, you know, one versus five right, at a right, family right. table. Right. Uh, so, so, yeah, you guys are hitting all the cylinders there. Um, I did also want to chime in about the white privilege uh, yep. notion because that kind of, um, you know, kind of uh, made me think of my own experience. You know, you know, uh, you know, Walter, you know my story, uh, but uh, just for the audience and, and fascinating, I I'm Somali. I was you know born a refugee, but despite that, I had the opportunity to go to one of the best uh, schools in the country at Tufts University, and at the age of 16, along with 11 other students from the urban metro area, got to go to MIT and present our invention. Um, so to me, I mean, like, it's, you know, the sky's the ceiling. You know, the sky's the limit, I mean. And, uh, you know, I understand where you guys are kind of getting to the nitty-gritty, and I actually agree that it's more of a cultural issue, uh, talking about the issue of white privilege or, mm-hmm. and whatnot, uh, rather than a systemic one that we can uh, point to. But when I look at African immigrants making... 30% more than uh, African Americans in this country. Right. I think it's 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 past just being skin deep. I, it, it it makes me think whether it's the cultural values, the kind of uh, family uh, structure that might be really you know incentivizing economic mobility. And when you look at the the Jewish community who came from you know something as atrocious as the Holocaust, being able to exponentially uplift themselves over the decades. Right. Um, right. right. That's. That's just my two cents there with the, with the argument of white privilege. 
Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate that contribution, Abdi, because it goes exactly to one of the ways. And I don't want the the balance of the program tonight to become all about talking about white privilege. But this this has served as a good example of the type of conversation that one might have with a family member on Thanksgiving about a topic that's obviously divisive, obviously a a, a flashpoint for conflict in the public discourse, but touches upon a, a core idea that really does deserve to be discussed. And that is this notion of the the lingering effects of harmful institutions that action has been taken to correct civil rights movement, abolition, civil war, but that nonetheless have had a lasting effect generationally upon people who are alive today. And, you know, how do we deal with that? And Abdi brings up an aspect of this that I think is important for progressives such as yourself, Pastor Nathan to address. And that is the other side of the privilege conversation, because I would argue much in the way that I heard Abdi state that as a minority, I enjoy privileges. Like there's, there's, there is a black privilege in the United States of America. Now it may not take the same shape as white privilege. It may not have the same uh, features and benefits as a white privilege, but it's got some features and benefits. And you know, the, the, the notion, particularly in a context where you have some of these, these corrective, notions that have taken place such as affirmative action or whatever the case may be that there's a there's a certain weight that is applied to to your opinion to your statements uh to your to your life story you know you're you're given a certain credit for being a, from a minority group people people want to hear what you have to say they want to take it seriously with, and as opposed to if you're white, one of the one of the negative aspects of your white privilege is that you're being told constantly that your opinion doesn't matter and that you, there's enough of you. Like I've heard that literally said. I've heard, heard progressive activists literally say to white cisgendered heterosexual men, "There's enough. We've had enough of you." We've we've heard enough from you. We've heard enough from your perspective. You need to shut up. You need to sit down. Your your opinion is not important. So no matter what you're saying as an individual, we're not interested in your perspective because of the category of person you come from. And you you never hear that nowadays applied to somebody like me or somebody like Abdi because by by virtue of our minority status we have the privilege of being taken seriously. So there's kind of that other side of the privilege coin. And then also one of the drawbacks I see to the, this privilege conversation is it creates this asterisk. I mean, you know, you talk about the, the idea of somebody who is in a position of power, institutional power, you know, they, they get a job, they're the CEO, they're the elected to something or whatever the case may be. And they're benefiting from this, this historical advantage, this current in the river that benefits white people. And that that puts a kind of an asterisk next to their accomplishment in a similar sense, the things that I've achieved or the things that Abdi has achieved or the things that, you know, Michael Jordan or LeBron James has achieved 
it, it places an asterisk on those achievements when you have to view them through the lens of race and say, you know, isn't it... it, it it's it's not because of what he did or what she did. It's because we have to take into account who they are, what demographic categories they fall into, and then weigh their accomplishments accordingly. To my mind, doesn't that de- doesn't that detract from what individuals have accomplished? So I think if your project is defining value based on accomplishments, a value of a human based on accomplishments, um, I don't agree with that project. As a Christian, I don't agree with that project. Your value is because you are a human being, you are a child of God, and you deserve love and, ex- and acceptance and your value. So if, if that's, if, if detracting value, if detracting value from your accomplishment detracts value from you as a human, that's a bad project in my mind. And I would say that that linkage between the value of an accomplishment and the value of the person who made it as a human being is is something that you you might be inferring without it actually being intended because there's no to, to my mind at least lebron james isn't a better human being because of what he's accomplished on the basketball court right you know uh, Abdi isn't a better human being because he was able to present an engineering concept to MIT but the accomplishment is noteworthy on its own merits, and it is what it is, and it's something that I haven't done. And in, in the case of both Omni and LeBron James, something I cannot do and something that deserves to be admired on its own merits. But, but aren't we detracting from the value of the accomplishment by putting this kind of racial asterisk next to it? So I think that putting it within a context of saying when, you, when someone says, we don't need to hear from you because you're a white straight male. Um, I think what they're saying is we hear from you at work because you're a boss. We hear from you and your family because you are the father and you often get to talk more than everyone else. We hear from you, um, in class because, uh, boys answer questions in class more than, uh, females do. Um, so we've heard your perspective a lot, which means it's no longer newsworthy because the default of it being newsworthy means that it is something that is different than what we've accomplished, what we've heard before. And so minorities, I think now are having um, an important moment in media. Um, and I think it's great because I am interested in some other perspectives. I kind of know what white straight men think about stuff. They kind of fall into a few categories and I've kind of heard a lot of it, you know? And so I, that's what I find exciting about talking to people from other cultures. Um, I also think that the context upon which someone has achieved something, you know, when Abdi talks about uh, being uh, an immigrant to this country, um, that is an incredible accomplishment. That is it's, to, to integrate yourself into a new culture is an incredible accomplishment to not just survive, but thrive in a new culture. That's a huge accomplishment, all these things. And then on top of that, he contributes something at an MIT level. And I think acknowledging that these other things are also there that are maybe not there for the other people who are presenting at MIT, which is probably a lot of other people, you can lift up Abdi as unique and amazing and say, hey, look, these people who also accomplished something didn't have to do that. So that doesn't make you bad or 
you should, don't need to feel ashamed about that, but don't pretend like you've accomplished the same thing. I think I'm picking up what you're putting down. I have to spend some more time thinking about it than I currently have the luxury of doing. Uh, suffice it to say that w- what I find interesting about the one of Abdi's other observations, you know, he specifically talked about the difference between African immigrants and what they've collectively been able to achieve versus native born African Americans. And, and he suggested that perhaps there might be some, some cultural or social uh, inhibiting factors that, that can explain that disparity between those two groups. One of the things that I've talked about occasionally here on the program is and I forget the exact terminology that I've come up with it. It's it's this kind of re this kind of policing of class that takes place within one's own group. So you know the idea of being too big for your britches or being being uppity because you aspire to do something better than the people around you. You aspire to go to college when nobody in your family ever has. You aspire to move out to the suburbs when everybody you know lives in the city. You know, you aspire to, to to get a job and to actually do well at it when you know, a lot of people, you know, are on assistance and have no aspiration of getting off of it. There's this this reaction amongst the culture in which you live that tries to pull you down when you aspire to rise up because it's taken as it's taken as a critique against them. Like, what do you are you saying? You're better than me. Are you saying you you that that? this isn't good enough for you and and, you know and so i wonder to what extent that tendency which i think is a very real tendency that that you know crosses cultural this happens at at every stage it happens in rural communities too absolutely i think that 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 has been to a large degree buttressed and sort of supported and and engaged and endured some kind of calcification as a result of some of the social institutions that have been erected, you know, that when we talk about the welfare state and the destructive, un, if unintentional, uh, corollaries along with that, I think this is one of them. You know, when, when people have the ability to, to rest upon or, or to lean upon this unconditional support, it, a culture develops around it which can be inhibiting an African immigrant doesn't have that weighing them down as an anchor. Like they, they come here and there's an, there's an inherent momentum. And this is true of all immigrants. There's an inherent momentum that comes with immigration that you arrive out of your comfort zone. Right. And so you're well motivated to take action, to improve the course of your life. Whereas somebody who's born into a bad situation there's an inherent, it's almost the opposite. There's like an inherent inertia keeping them in place. So I always think to myself, um, for every person that comes to this country, they have to say yes, that I'm going to start over in a new context. And that's a particular kind of person who is going to uproot their family, come to a new place, start over, learn a new language. There's that, That's a more motivated individual than the people who are like, yeah, I'm good. Right. You know, who just are coming, you know, like, ah, this is too much. Um, I also think that one of the things that progressives aren't very good at articulating is that a lot of um, 
government assistance programs are poverty management and not poverty alleviation. Correct. And I think that's something that um, people who are progressives and Democrats often don't want to say because they feel that that will be weaponized by conservatives to cut those programs. In much the same way as the white privilege concept is weaponized by the left in, in order to affect their political goals. Right. And so when you acknowledge that uh, you're paying someone just enough so that they don't do something that you don't want them to do, so that they're not um, starving, so that they're not right. extreme poverty. It's yeah. managing extreme poverty. Right. And when you manage extreme poverty, which is good, um, but the program is not very well designed to wean someone off in order to leverage them into better things because that's actually a much more expensive project. Sure. Well, both... Uh, in terms of both finance and other non-material resources, like you have to actually engage with people. And yeah, so. and and it, generational breaking generational poverty is also a psychological and spiritual process, and that's something that I think people need to think about as well. Like, what does it mean to give someone the resources to say no when other people are saying don't make a different life choice because. You think you're better than me. Right. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Pastor Nathan Roberts in with us. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. We got just enough time in this segment to take one call. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Pastor Nathan Roberts in studio with us. Let's talk to Joe in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Yeah. Hi. So yeah, I've been listening to y'all, and uh, and I'm still hearing you know more of a, a a white perspective of what's going on in the black community, and and I, I just thought maybe need a, a black voice to to you know, to come on and just, you know, say what's going on in the black community. You know, you're talking about, uh, and y'all have kind of alluded to it, and I may be echoing it, but, you know, when you talk about immigrants coming to this country mm-hmm. and and they're successful, well, they, they purpose coming to this country, and 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 hopefully they, they are trying to be. But when you talk about African-Americans who who, who did not, the ones who were born here, who did not purpose coming to this country and 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 succeeding, I don't even think you all come close to understanding how hard that is. How hard it is to come from from the projects or from Brandy Greens or, or or some of these these the south side of Chicago and to succeed in this Man. Okay, so to to your mind, Joe, what kinds of things can and should be done to make it less difficult? Uh, no, it, it's just a process. It's just a process. It's it's a healing process. I mean, let, let's put it. I'm glad you. Asked. Let's put it like this. If if uh, I, I I liken it to this, and I tell my children this, it's like being shot with a shotgun in your in your stomach. You know, just shot, and there's a wound there, and and that's what happened. To African Americans, there was a shot coming in the slave, 
as slaves and and then progressing, you know, out of slavery for whatever means that we progressed out of. And then there's a wound there. And and so it, the, when you when you get shot, you can tell a, you can't tell a wound to heal. A wound has to heal itself, and nobody has a. I mean, when it comes to this wound, the wound we're talking about, as far as African Americans, who, what, what, how long does it take to heal? How long, you know, does anybody know? Does anybody is there a limit set to how long it takes to heal for what happened to African Americans from the exception from coming into this country as he did on the, on the bottom of the boat, not on the top of the boat, you know, and I think we're in the process of healing. And, and I think one fellow, you know, one of you two alluded to, you know, to being born here and, and, and how that, that worked. So how would I say that worked? Um, I would say, I would say the wound just, it just takes time. It takes time. And you know how you know when somebody's feeling better? Hmm. You ask them, are you feeling better? And they'll tell you. And you can see whether they're feeling better. Go in any city in America, any, any big city, and you see African Americans, they're not doing well. So maybe that wound hasn't healed. It, it may take more time, but there are some who, who get out, out of that, and I, you can allude point to them. So yeah. I, I'm just telling you, it takes time, and nobody knows the time. You can't tell a wound to heal. It just it heals when it's yeah. I, I I take your point, Joe. I appreciate you calling and making the point. I hope you'll call back at some point. Um, you know, I, I can't argue, and nor would I try to argue with Joe's perspective. What I find interesting, however, is that my my instinctive response to what he contributed just now is to ask the question, is healing actually the objective? Because when I consider the rhetoric that I hear from the left side of the political spectrum and the way in which it's been weaponized for political effect and electoral effect, it doesn't seem as though there's an actual vision for getting us, that, like that there's actually like a treatment plan that's in place to try to get us to the point where that healing that Joe's talking about actually takes place and then in point of fact if you want to be super cynical about it which we've been once in a while on the program if you want to be super cynical about it that's actually advantageous to keep the patient in the hospital as long as possible to rack up that bill and in, in order to benefit certain powers so one thing i think about in terms of you talking about time to heal and i really appreciate you could hear the um pain and and work in his that he had done with him and his family and um, in his life and I really appreciated that um, America has been actively trying to keep down minorities women and gay people for 200 years it's been part of the project to keep keep people down um, and so to keep people separate to keep people in different neighborhoods until the 1960s that was the explicit project that that people had White people go to this school, black people go to this school. Um, you know, men vote, women don't vote. So, and then for another 40 years, we just sort of tried to figure it out without intent, a lot of intentionality. Mm -hmm. And I only think in the last few years have we 
started to really have some of the conversations that we should have been having right after King was killed. Some of these really difficult conversations um, that we've been putting off. You know, in South Africa, they had the Truth and Reconciliation Project where they, they as a country, sort of repented from what they had done during apartheid. And we as a country have never really communally repented the pain that had been afflicted on people. Let's talk a little bit about what that might look like when we return. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. If you want to get in on the conversation, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's great having you with us. we got Pastor Nathan Roberts with us in studio. We've been talking about, you know, we started off the evening talking about Thanksgiving and kind of previewing the encounters that you may have with your ideological opponents within your own family this holiday and that has set the stage for our own kind of model conversation you know family dinner table conversation about the topic of white privilege and race in america and i want to pick up right where we left off going into the bottom of the hour break there you know we were talking about we had a great call from joe in st paul uh who was talking about the black experience here in america and the he, he painted this metaphor of slavery in particular as this kind of shotgun wound to the gut of blacks generally and that there's this need to heal and that the healing process takes time and it's and it takes whatever amount of time it takes and that it can't be rushed that was basically the takeaways that i got from the call and nathan kind of responded to that a little bit uh and you know it's interesting because one of the things you noted was that how laws were changed in this country relatively recently, right? Like 1964, right? That that made changes to some systemic institutional injustices that we all agree were bad. Like Jim Crow was bad. I don't think that's a controversial statement in the year 2018. But it is the year 2018, like 2018, and we're talking about 1964. It's interesting to me, you know, I was born in 1978. Movies, just just a couple of decades prior to my birth, the most popular movie genre was the Western. And Westerns tell stories that took place in like 1880, 100 years before I was born. And as I was a kid growing up, when I would watch a Western or even when I would watch, you know, a, a relatively modern film that had a Western setting like Back to the Future Part 3 or whatever... I didn't find myself relating to that world. Like it's to, it seemed like ancient history to me, 1880, even though in reality, a hundred years is not a long time. I mean, there's people who, you know, were alive when I was born who lived in 1880, right? Like people can be a hundred years old. Um, and so I guess the question I'm getting after here is when we talk about the healing process and we talk about getting over for lack of a better term, something like slavery or something like Jim Crow. When we when we come up upon pushing a hundred years out from the civil rights era, like it, 
is there a point past which it no longer becomes fair to really compare to really talk about things that happened decades ago as having a i guess a handicapping effect upon people's ability to achieve today so um i think that sometimes years can be a little misleading um i like to think about it in terms of generations because a formative trauma in the life of a person can have a pretty long shadow in the life of that individual sure um like we don't kind of ask vietnam war vets to just kind of like move it doesn't matter how long vietnam was right the damage is done right you know and so uh when you have a significant trauma you have to um acknowledge that that person has to live with that trauma for the rest of their life and so how and um oftentimes uh trauma is generational too so if you grow up and your parents have this difficulty or anger or resentment from missed opportunities or um have housing issues that's going to shape how you grow up absolutely which is also going to shape um, how you show up and as an adult. Right. And so each generation may be getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly think that a lot of the young people have more skills to, to think and talk about diversity, to make relationships, more opportunities. It's getting better all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but what about those people? I mean, Ruby Bridges, like I said, is 63 years old. You know, she has a head full of memories of white people lining the streets, telling her, and calling her horrible names and throwing things at her. Mm-hmm. She's 63 years old. You don't forget something like that. Right. Well, and I I don't know that anybody's asking her or anybody with a similar trauma in their past to forget their own experience. What I find what what I find acting as kind of a uh you know, we talked about locks and dams earlier in in uh in one of your metaphors. What I what I find is kind of an obstruction to social progress is this sort of collectivization of the whole process. So, you know, what I've got I've been getting messages from listeners throughout the program tonight. And one of the themes that's emerged is this idea of well, you know, it, they're, them telling their stories of this is what my I'm white, but this is what my family had to go through that is it presents a unique impediment to our progress and what have you. And by by collectivizing everything and talking about white privilege, you're discounting my individual experience and basically telling me that the obstacles in my life don't matter because of the color of my skin. And I think that's where progressives have really missed the mark. Um, Hillary Clinton, when we progressives did sort of the collective autopsy, um, one thing that someone noted was that when she was saying, I'm going to be the president for this person, I'm going to be the president for black people, for transgender people. She didn't say white people. And I think that something that's happened is, and I think it's the it's also this churning up of people in rural communities that are now really coming out for Trump. They have experienced significant community trauma. When the factory shuts down in your town, that is a trauma for your community, I and mean, that that is horrible. That's a horrible thing for a community. Watching your losing the family farm, these things that have happened in the rural community have not been engaged very well with the progressive movement. And I think that's where you can talk about, okay, you've got some privileges. Um, It's not, you don't just have, you do have white privilege, but you also don't have class privilege. You don't have the privilege of having gone, 
made, it was a foregone conclusion that you got to go to college like it is for a lot of suburban kids. You know, you don't have that privilege. And so expanding the definition of, of how we, of the kinds of opportunities we had. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's, maybe that's better language for conservatives. Talk about opportunities. Well, and the, what I want to get to in our last segment tonight, and, and we, unfortunately we once again have to cut to a break, is once we've had, like once we get past this, this acknowledgement that there are certain privileges, if you want to characterize them that way, that emerge from whatever your race, your your economic status, where you live, the the year you were born in. Like, there's all sorts of ways in which you can be privileged, all sorts of things that can affect it. Once we acknowledge that, now what? Like, what what's the next step? What, what are we supposed to do with this information? 651-989-5855. Closing argument. Pastor Nathan Roberts in studio with us. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Adam and Representative Nick Zorwas in for the Friday Roundtable. Plus, we'll check in with Representative Tom Emmer. Listen live 6 to 9 on Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130 and 103.5 FM. Let's land this thing. We've been talking with Pastor Nathan Roberts for the the show tonight, the balance of the show tonight. We started off talking about you know previewing your Thanksgiving holiday and talking about how to engage with your family members who have a different ideological persuasion, and that kind of opened the door, set the stage for us to have our own sort of model conversation about a divisive issue, and the issue of choice has been white privilege and race and the effect of race on our society and in our culture. So now I want to get to, you know, in our, in our final segment of the night, I want to talk about the prescription for addressing the problem. Like if we take for the sake of argument, the notion that privilege is a real thing, that there are certain advantages that people have as a, as a, as a consequence of, whatever their skin color their economic social economic status the place where they were born the the time in which they were born there there are a million different ways that you could potentially enjoy a privilege that somebody else doesn't have when we after we acknowledge that what are we supposed to do with it like what what's the prescription because it seems to me like the way this this idea is weaponized by the left is it's my Mike and perhaps it's a caricature, but what I hear the left saying is because of this privilege, you need to get out of the way because of this privilege. We're going to, we're going to take what you have and give it to people who are less privileged. Is that the solution to the problem? So I think that those voices get a lot of attention because it's a very sort of sexy way to address the problem. Um, it's very like sort of uprising and revolutionary. Um, so it's easy to kind of point at those um, people who are saying that. Uh, I think a better analogy is to talk about uh, people who are in wheelchairs, right? And people in wheelchairs need to live their life. And the question is to live their life, they need to have curbs that allow them to move right. up, move yeah. up and down off the street. Right. The question is whose job is it to make sure that there is accessible streets? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where libertarians, conservatives, progressives, liberals, 
they can't figure out whose job that is mm-hmm. to, 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 because I think, and for me as a Christian, this is where I fall back on my faith and say, it's my job because I'm called to love my neighbor. So I'm called to be a part of the solution. Now, who's going to work with me on that solution? If that's going to be the government, if that's going to be a nonprofit, if that's going to be a for-profit business, if that's going to be friends and family, like we can discuss that. But I think as people of faith who are called to love our neighbor and called to love people in wheelchairs, we can't just sit it out. So, and naturally we have very little time to try to unpack something as philosophically dense as, as what we're raising here. But the, the issue to me, the root of the disagreement between right and left on that point of whose responsibility it is, because there's two different levels at which you can have that conversation. One is who ought to care and who ought to act. And the other level on which you can have that conversation is who has the right, who, who shall be forced to do X, Y, or Z. Because once you start talking about government and you start talking about public policy, you start talking about the law and taxes and, and how tax dollars are spent at that point, you've crossed a threshold from having a persuasive conversation about why you should care and what you should do to pointing a metaphorical gun at a person's head and saying, we're going to take your money and we're going to use it for, to, for this purpose that we've deemed to be a moral imperative. And to, to my mind, that's where the conversation breaks down because I'm more than willing to engage with you on why I should care about the person in a wheelchair who doesn't have access to a building that they need to get into. What I'm, what I'm not willing to concede is that because somebody has a disadvantage for whatever reason, you get to take what I've earned in order to provide for my family and deal with my issues, right? Like, cause everybody has their thing. Everybody has their disadvantage that they're trying to get over. And my disadvantages might not be politically popular or have any sort of political advantage. Ad- advantage or lobby backing them. So I have to deal with my own problems as an individual, but you're telling me that I also on top of my own issues and my own family and my own concerns, I also have to be saddled with these concerns that have a constituency. Yeah. And I think that's a really long and complicated, but a very, very important conversation. Um, Hey, I want to give a quick shout out to a a play that I uh, wrote that I'm super excited about. It's called The Plot to Kill Hitler, a theatrical retelling of the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pacifist turned um, revolutionary who joined uh, the assassination attempt on Hitler. It's uh, this Friday, November 16th. Uh, It's at... First Lutheran Church of Columbia Heights. Uh, we'd love to see you there. It's at 7 o'clock. Um, it's a little more intense, so it's for youth and above. Uh, there is a lot of, you know, it's a war play, so. Um, you didn't, you didn't write a family friendly Nazi play? I'm shocked. No, you know, it's uh, you know it's not a snowflake play, though. All right. We'll talk next time about it. TwinCitiesNewTalk.com. <laughs>